5678. Hello. My name is Rebecca Berstold. You are listening to 5678, a podcast about dance training. In this episode, I meet Tillman O'Donnell. We are recording in Härnösand, where the company Nordans is based, where I'm working as a dancer, and Tillman are during two weeks guiding the morning training here. Yes, let's go. First episode, enjoy. could start by you introducing yourself shortly. Yeah. Um, my name is Tillman. I work as a dancer, a choreographer, and a teacher uh, in equal measure these days. And I've been doing it for going on 20 years now, uh, mostly in the European context, but also internationally or intercontinentally, I suppose. And um, I went to school at the National Ballet School in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So that's my back. That's my dance background, and I live in Stockholm. Yeah. Nice. Yep. So uh, this podcast, I would like to talk to you about dance training, mm. and I will start at the beginning, maybe, to yeah. ask you how did you start to dance? Uh, I I was enrolled in a Rudolf Steiner school, so Waldorf mm. education, and. There was a boy in my class. His name was Eli Martin Merrill. It's funny how you remember names from when you're 12. It's a good name. It's a great name, <laughs> a hyphenated name, no less. Anyhow, so he uh, he played the violin and he did ballet. He danced ballet. And I went to see a performance that he was part of called The Steadfast Tin Soldier at the Boston Ballet. And I remember he had a real small role in it where he came out as like the junior Steadfast Tin Soldier or something, you know. And he had a little dance part that lasted maybe 30 seconds or something like that. And I remember sitting in the audience and thinking to myself, I had no interest in dance or in the ballet or something, but I had an overwhelming sense of jealousy. <laughs> How's this for like stage hubris? But I thought to myself, There's no, this makes no sense. This, this kind of like, am I spiking a little bit? I just wanted to see if it's recording, sorry. Yeah, it's on. Yes. Yeah, it's red and it's on. Anyhow, so I thought to myself, uh, there's no, I really should be there. He, he's in the wrong place. I mean, he may be in the right place, but I'm more right. <laughs> I should be there, in other <laughs> words. So uh, to me, in the beginning, dancing, whatever form of dancing, was an excuse to be on stage. Um, I think I probably always had that, that kind of drive, even when I was a young kid, sort of entertaining my grandmother's friends and doing card tricks and things like that. And you didn't do anything similar at no, that point? No. no, not at all. I think I played soccer and, mm. you know, and well, I was in Waldorf school, so we did Eurythmy, which is a kind of movement technique, um, and painted watercolors and cut, cut the corners off of everything, <laughs> you know, whatever else we did in Waldorf school. Anyway, um, so that was the beginning, and I, I went to dance class once or twice a week at the Boston Ballet School, and it was a, like a boys' class, so that was kind of fun, you know, being a 
dancing ballet and being a, a young man at, in America is not the you know it's not so fun because people have real strong stigma. We don't have national academies in in the United States of art or dance the same way you have most Western European countries. So there isn't the kind of professionalization of dance. We'll probably talk about this a bit more later, but we don't have that idea um, in our culture. Maybe the closest thing to a professional dancer in the kind of public uh, consciousness is Broadway, somebody on Broadway. So if you're a song and dance man or something, singer. So, um, and then I started being part of these uh, ballet productions, big ballets, you know, Giselle and Swan Lake and the Nutcracker and stuff. There were always children's roles. You were like a peasant kid or, you know, a ruffian or you had to like roll a watermelon across the stage or something like that. And I, th I that was really what got me. I was, I was totally enamored with the theater, everything about the theater, the mechanics of the theater. So I used to, for example, I used to ask my mom to drive me to the theater four hours before the check-in time, which was an, itself an hour and a half before the performance. So I would be the first person in the theater besides the guy who would let you in the door and, you know, and then I used to wander around the, the theater in Boston. It was called the Wang Center. It was a big basement. I used to wander around back there and just kind of observe as all the departments would open up and the, the carpenters would arrive or the stage designers would arrive or the, the uh, not stage designers, but the, the, the technicians and the, the, you know, all the dancers and then the women would whack their point shoes on the concrete floor. Like I felt uh, there was like a, I maybe now talking about it now there was like a whole choreography to the to the to the engine starting in the theater that made this entire apparatus kind of come to life and I loved that I loved the smell of it I loved the whole the whole thing so ballet I didn't really care about mm. ballet was kind of an excuse and then I went to stop me if I'm rambling but and then I went to um, when I was 13 I was accepted into a summer dance program where I had a few really exceptional teachers. And that's kind of where I got, that's where it shifted for me. So that's where I, I realized that, oh, this is a really challenging form and exciting to, to, to be able to try to master. And because of course ballet is a lot about mastery over abstract form. And um, I just got obsessed in the way that a 13 year old can, you know. What was the obsession about? Gosh, that's a good question. I mean, first of all, I think it was something that I felt was mine. I think maybe that's really like I had. I have uh, an older brother and sister, and we're very close in age, and they're both of them are extremely intelligent and very talented. And all my sister is like a a language savant and my brother you know played the church organ and was an athlete and like they were both very intelligent and I think dancing was a thing that you know they didn't they didn't do that I did my parents do that I don't really come from a family of artists so it was this kind of you know and I described the theater I it was kind of a place that was mine I had a degree of autonomy and maybe when you're 13 14 15 you're trying to like take your first big step into becoming a subject an autonomous subject and I think ballet was an avenue for that mm -hmm. and it, it was dis a lot of discipline a lot of hard work um, and yet it was something that was kind of graspable you know uh, for, like my both of my parents are 
very well-educated, you know, academics. And I think that maybe classical dance was something that they could also, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is conjecture. I'm not really sure whether this is true, but I think it was something that I maybe thought that they could kind of understand and approve of, I suppose. So it's like, it was a place where I could be on my own, but I could still, but my parents would allow me to be there. There was a period where I got really into tap dance. I really wanted to do tap dance too, because my father took me to see um, a celebration with Jimmy Slide, who was this extraordinary tap dancer. And, and then I wanted to do that, but I was already enrolled in, in ballet six times a week. So uh, I didn't have the time to do it. And then, you know, it's challenging, it's quantifiable. You can kind of, when you, you can you can do one more turn, you know, one more pirouette. It's like you go from four to five pirouettes. You can you can feel mm. how you're starting to like to get it, and it takes a tremendous amount of work and and um, application. And as I remember, also in that age, it was a lot about finding your thing. Yeah, everyone had a thing yeah. and became a little little bit good at a thing. That's right. And I, you know, my other thing was trying to play being a grunge band and that really <laughs> really didn't work out so well we had one song that was called killer clown that was pretty awesome but uh, no I, I so that yeah that was my thing mm. you know i was in public school um which what's the equivalent of, i mean most schools in, in this part of the world are public schools but there's a differentiation in the u.s between private schools that you pay for and public school that's um that's open and so the, my school was a very diverse school um, a lot of different socioeconomic backgrounds and um, ethnic backgrounds and a lot so in the beginning when I told people I was dancing and for some people they thought that was just like I got made fun of a lot initially but then I think when people I think exactly what you're saying when they figure out like oh he's really into it whether it was like graffiti or poetry or skateboarding or you know making home videos and trying you know like i think yeah you you're looking for something that feels meaningful that that you chose mm. that your parents didn't choose for you and i think ballet was just a, a way that there was like an environment that suited that and then i think i grew to like the the athleticism and the form and the kind of rhythm of it i think there's something in it that was comforting for me also that it had like a it has a it has a you know a beginning a middle and an end it has a format and i liked that and i liked the i think i also like the storytelling of it which of course we don't really in the discussion of, about classicism in the contemporary environment we don't tend to talk about the fact that it's actually a medium for storytelling and i'm not connected to the classical dance world anymore but i have a feeling that that's not talked about all that much in the classical dance world anymore either unfortunately mm -hmm. So it's a little bit of a lost um, aspect as the athleticism and the competition of it has grown. That aspect of storytelling has sort of fallen away. And also le legibility. People don't know how to read classical dance anymore. There's a whole mime language that we actually studied in school that I think, you know, nine out of ten people who go to see the ballet don't know. So... Um, but I always thought that was there was like a kind of it's kind of romance to you know to those ballets mm. being a prince or whatever I, that initially that kind of that kind of wore off <laughs> once I was like seventeen or eighteen I think I kind of dropped that but so yeah that was my and the school in 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 Toronto was was a very good school and, and very intense 
At what age was that? I was 14 mm. when, I, when I moved there. I turned 15 the first year. And it was very hard for me. I had to go home after a year or two. I like had massive anxiety. It was like, it was very, a lot of pressure. And I have to, in retrospect, you know, a lot of that pressure was situational and was also, I say this not to get the form of ballet off the hook or certain teachers off the hook, but what I can recall is that we as students were like, we were brutal with mm. ourselves and with each other. Now, of course, there's a culture of that in classicism and actually in a lot of modern dance techniques I find that to be true too I think one of the there's a side note but one of the things that I maybe implicitly thought going from the classical training to the contemporary world was that they'd be much more emancipated as far as power relations are concerned and whatnot and I, I actually find that to not necessarily be true at all um, but yeah a lot of discipline a lot of form, a lot of repetition, and um, it was intense. You know, it's like you devote. You went to school all day, and then dance class all all afternoon and evening, and then homework, and then repeat, and six days a week. Yeah. For five years. For yeah, I guess. Well, I did one year of postgraduate education because I got injured in the last year of school. I had a back injury, and I was told I wouldn't dance anymore. And, um, so I had a spinal problem. So I did one extra year afterwards to retrain. So, And then you went to Gothenburg? Yeah, yeah. and then I started to work. Yeah. And then after graduating and starting to work, how did the training part of your yeah. dance life continue? Yeah, well, I mean, okay, so on a practical level, I, we had training every day. I, was, I, I danced in a lot of dance companies, and there was training every morning. That was a sort of built-in part of the routine. I felt a lot of different things about my training in the first five years of work. Uh, most of all, I felt behind a lot of my European colleagues and friends, um, many of whom had gone to, like, conservatory-style schools uh, in in like the conservatoire in Paris or something. So they came out of those educations sort of steeped in what we would probably now call the neoclassical repertoire of the late 20th century or whatever. So they like they could do things already. They knew how to like I mean, I don't, you know, I think I had Cunningham class twice a week in in ballet school that that I liked to do a lot, but that, you know, most of the people in the school didn't take very seriously. I don't think I'd ever done a bum roll, you know until I graduated school and went to the modern dance company and took class with them when they did their bongo drum classes and do phrases across the floor and there'd be a bum roll. So when I arrived at work and it was assumed that, you know, you have the technical ability, I mean really on the, on the level of embodied skill to like go down to the ground and like do a roll over your head, all this floor work that, you know, was studied in conservatories here. Uh, we didn't have that that training and that my training was you were meant to go into a classical dance company and continue that lineage and you know work your way through the hierarchies of any number of classical dance companies around the world so I, I felt frustration about my training um, when I first left school because I felt like damn it it wasn't adequate but of course in retrospect, I understand it only wasn't adequate to what I was trying to do. It was very adequate for what it was designed to do. You know? So, but in those work environments, you learn real quick. You know, necessity. You you figure it out, and you have a lot of colleagues that know how to do things. And they were nice enough when I would ask them really basic questions, like, 
to you. How do you do that? You know, <laughs> I think my first perform I remember my first professional performance was in Austria. I was doing Hermann Schmermann, which is an old sort of more classical piece of Bill Forsyth's, and I had to do a turn. There's a strange turn you have to do, and then you have to land. And I turned, and the next thing I knew, I was like, my ass was in the air, and <laughs> I was on the ground, and I was looking out at the audience upside down. And I had no contingency plan for that. Like, <laughs> I had no education for like, and flow your way out. And, you know, it's all part of a, you know, just like, whoosh. And so I just sat there for a good, you know, <laughs> I don't know what feels now, like 10 seconds, probably like a few seconds. And then I think I just got up and I hit a pose, the ending <laughs> pose of the phrase. And then I think I very slowly walked off. I think I imagined that if I moved slow, you know, nobody would have noticed. And I, thank goodness, I had a, I had a boss at the time, Amdash uh, Hedlström, who was running the company at the time, who came into the dressing room right away afterwards. I think this was a real, just um, a good example of good leadership. And he came in, he was like, first, how you doing? You okay? And I was like, um, that depends on <laughs> kind of on what you think, I guess. And then he said, like, good start. That was his comment. It was good start. Good way to get going. So, so that was a comfort. I realized, like, okay, I have this technique. I have this this classical education, and, and it's up to me to figure out what to do with it. And I, here I am among people who are um, bending and stretching and shifting it and, and dissolving it and deconstructing and reconstructing it. So over time, I think I became thankful for that sense of form. And, um, and also the discipline, but learning over the ensuing years, and this I'm still learning to... Um, to have the, the, the ability to stick with things. And there, I think this is also uh, informed the way I teach and the way I make work without some of the kind of like uh, inner pressure to be something. I think that that's where the discipline and like, and the kind of, um, I don't know, inner tightness gets, it, that was the tough part about being in dance school, I think in ballet school at that age. But the discipline, I think, is really, is really great. I'm quite thankful for that. Mm. Discipline defined as like the ability to repeat things and continue looking for different aspects of it, and and not really a problem with the repetition of certain forms. And you know, yeah. I think you learn that in the classical education, yeah. among other educations. It's a nice way in to yeah. my next question. Because um, I often talk about that I'm thankful to my dance training that it has trained, for example, an ability to sense space, mm. that I can sense my body, I can sense my feet and my head. Yeah. I can also send that attention outside of my body. Mm. I can sit at a bar and sense the space between my head and the ceiling mm. and be very consumed by that which I find very awesome. And that is really something that I have trained. And I wondered if you could mention some things that you are thankful for, mm. that your dance training has been training. Yeah. You're already yeah. going there. Yeah. Okay, pause, I'm gonna take my sweater off. Um, I'm gonna make noise. Yeah, we have so noise, good noise, sound noise, equipment noise. here. It I catches everything. Every tiny little. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every tiny shifts, and I'm wearing my snow pants from <laughs> Sweden in the winter time. Um, okay, the things I'm thankful for. So you mentioned um, 
a kind of what I'm understanding when you say that is a is a is a somatic an embodied sense of space. I don't think my classical education had that as a priority. Although I think towards the end of the education, there were certain teachers who were trying to kind of put that in on the sly, right? Because I think even, and again, I'm talking a lot about classicism just because that's my education. It doesn't concern me that much now, but to be a really good classical dancer, you, you, you have to have exactly what you're talking about, a, set, a, a, a completely embodied uh, sense of space and time. Mm. And a lot of you know, classical dancers never are introduced to that idea, uh, let alone an embodied experience of that in their education. And if they're able to do it, it's because they have that sensibility or they pick it up from a good coach or something like that. So that I didn't have in my education. I think those are ideas that I've been, that have been coming at me through the work I've been doing um, uh, through um, an interest in uh, Zen meditation, through reading certain ideas of critical theory, through somatic experiencing uh, via choreographic work that I've done with colleagues through, um, uh, yeah, what else? Through um, some of the teachers I've had, through through work. Bill Forsyth is also a way of looking at mechanics and body and space, which begins to abstract it in a, in a way initially that balletically I could understand. And then actually when he gets down to it, he's talking a lot about you have to feel your way through, which opens up the avenue to like, Oh right, okay. This sensibility about space and time is really I can I can work with this as a material. Mm. You know? But I felt even though my early classes were also not, um, or they were introducing it in a way that reach your hand out yeah. and feel how it's reaching outside of this room. Yeah. Not maybe so much fe feeling my own way through it all the time. Yeah. But early, at least. Yeah. Being instructed how to sense. Right. Right. That's a good point. I mean, you know, and it, okay, so I'll take it back halfway to say like a classical education or a kind of, you know, linear modern dance technique, it gives you the ability to put a limb in relation to space. It might be a kind of abstract, um, superimposed sense of architecture of space, but you can put the arm there and approximate that line. So you can actually embody. <laughs> the avenue which then can be sensed it's like you can build the sensibility mm. from the inside out given the fact that you can put your body in that form so that's a kind of two thumbs up for the idea of learning a form um, it kind of and then you can so what you can do from it is you can mine the container of that form for your own way of sensing space time and movement um, and then your sense of that form can change over time so if there's anything that I think is kind of interesting about aging, maybe the one one or two thing that was interesting about aging in the profession is that, is that you notice how your attachment to form changes over time. And that in turn uh, lets you kind of soften around the idea that there's ultimate forms or right, whatever kind of ideological structure you might have hanging out inside of you thinking like, oh, this is the right way to form form. And mm. no, there's 101 different ways, but you can try out different ones or find your way through so do you have a clear shift of that when it went from i don't know executing to experiencing oh that's such a good question um and the language is so good executing and experiencing um 
You know, and I'm going to answer something that's not satisfying because it's not really polemic enough, but the two are intertwined. So even if I think back now that we're talking about what was my early education, I think I had moments of that kind of experiential sense of embodiment and space and time and movement and trajectory, even though I was in a very classical. I mean, I think I probably felt it walking the diagonal doing the role of Hilarion in the second act of Giselle, you know, going towards Giselle's grave, by the way, is like a nymph. So it's just, but anyway, and holding the flower and mourning and like getting coached on how, how the hand should be placed on the heart, you know, with little finger, like all that. So there's detail in there that also starts to wake up that sensibility. So the, the way of not just executing, but sensing your way through. So I think over time, it's more a question of like the tuning thing. So the sensibility has been tuned up and form has been a way to support that rather than I want to execute these forms as perfectly as possible so that I become an object of desire and can be, you know, high up in a ballet company and, mm. and be, and hopefully tell a story, but you know. But do you think it's a suitable chronology for it or do you think that you could attend to the mm, sensing your way through earlier in training because i if i look at the at least the early and amateur training that i had it was not attending to sensing your way through right no um right well that's really interesting and i mean a lot of and i think it's changed so radically and it was already changing at the time that i was a student but a lot of ballet training is about actually training away that individual sense so that you can nail the form you know or like putting your body in the form anyway you know sense be damned but of course along the way you meet good teachers who are kind of, kind of whisper at you at the time and i don't think they're whispering anymore i think they're now talking about it it's like you can form a body into the classical form without destroying it um, uh, psychologically and physically or psychodynamically or psychobiologically. But uh, uh, at that time, they'd kind of whisper to you like, hey, you know, if you just put it in a little bit and you reach out there and you... And I remember I had a teacher, what was his name again? He was Belgian, Jan something or other. And he would talk about doing a balance and say like, imagine a waterfall and then press your big toe into the ground. I was like, what is that? And I would do it, and I'd be like, oh my goodness, I can balance now, which means I can turn, which means I can turn more, which means I'm awesome. <laughs> but so, so there were seeds of that kind of sensibility in my training, and I was lucky to have, not in the early training, I had very bad training from like 10 to 13, generally. But afterwards, when I was in Canada, I had quite good detail-oriented training, but not a lot about, well, how do you feel your way through, or what is it? What's the sensation for you? I mean, that wasn't <laughs> wasn't really on the menu. And that has come much more through work. So the question that you ask is: it a, is it the right trajectory? I'm, I'm I, I wish I had like a perfect answer. You know, I, I'm calling that into question a lot, especially as I step more and more into the role of teaching, especially in the context of early education. So people like teenagers or university students, and it's a really different. Sometimes the way we talk about extending sensibility and form into space in a sort of open-ended way is too much for a 16-year-old who is primarily concerned with, you know, like you were talking about earlier, being good at something, identifying with a form, understanding it through repetition, feeling the safety of that so they can be stable enough to kind of walk away from 
from their home environment and out into the world. It's, you know, I'm being a bit of a cheap psychologist when I say that, but, but so if you start introducing like, but just sense the thing through, it's like, like sometimes it's destabilizing, yeah. you know, depending on the person, but it can really throw them into a tailspin or they go into overwhelm, you know, like, but so it's not the right time. Mm. Maybe, maybe it's necessary to responsibly work on repetition and form uh, to give a sense of security and, and, and st- stability. And then when the curiosity for something else begins to arise, then there's space to start hollowing it out and, mm. and, and making it more flexible from the inside using um, any number of techniques of sensation sensibility. So I don't know if there's a right trajectory. Um, I think there's a, res- however, I can say, I think that there's a responsible way to teach people form and repetition and discipline, mm. um, which I experienced for the most part in my education in Canada and less so in my early education. It was mm. really like, get into the form no matter what. If it hurts, doesn't matter. Mm. You're bad if you can't yeah, do Yeah, and I also so. don't think that there's maybe a right way, mm-hmm. but my case is maybe that this um, sensing your way through as mm. we maybe start to <laughs> name it now yeah. that there's also levels in that yeah. and that you could start on a basic level by putting your hand on someone yeah. taking the hand away and sensing the yeah. mark of that touch yeah. would be a very concrete way of introducing yeah. a sensing relationship to your own body and yeah. then you, when you have that concrete impression of touch maybe you can also start to talk about sensing that within a form yeah. or yeah mm, yeah i'm just when i think about it a little bit surprised how late in my training who has that has mostly been contemporary right how late it came huh. that someone said yeah. how does it feel yeah right i know that so i didn't go through the kind of education that you went through uh i know that it's taken me, and I'm still working on it I'm like hell, it's taken me a long time to differentiate what my preferences are, how I feel about something, and what the sensory, sensorial level of it is, insofar as those things can even be separated. Like it's really tricky yeah. <laughs> to know the difference. And then generally it's contextualized. It's in somebody's work or your work, or it's in a particular um, environment that has aesthetic um, predispositions it's a gallery it's a library it's in uh, uh, theater whatever so it's very hard to know sometimes so even if you ask the question sometimes early in an education and you sort of slide it in it's like okay so how does it feel sometimes uh some people are ready to hear it and some aren't and some for some it just confuses the whole mm. the whole thing gets out of whack but it's a very interesting thing you, you put forward you know t- t- to what extent could it be introduced earlier as part of, as an adjunct to learning form and, and, and to actually name it, that this is sensation, this is form, this is preference, this is feeling, and let's begin to map it as we train. You can map those things. Um, and then I'll say also, you'll be surprised sometimes when you try to introduce that, you know, thinking that it's really... You know, you have your own experience of, of discovery and you think, oh, this makes dancing such a rich experience. I really want to share that 
with people I teach, and then you, you say, you know, and try to embody and give exam, and they just get total rejection. And not, it's not a personal thing, it's just, it's what, say, what I think what's being said is the system is not primed at this moment in time to receive that level of, it's too much. I'm too concerned with like building something steady. And I know from my own life and from my own work that my friend used to talk about is like, you know, the five year acceleration, like all oh, these things and you're building stuff and you're synthesizing, you got this like information and everything's getting together and like boom, 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 and you make some stuff and then you plateau for a while. And you're kind of composting and you feel a bit like I never had anything to say and I don't know, you know, I guess I'm not really good. Maybe I should quit. And uh, Jacob Wren says that, the Canadian experimental theater maker, he says like, I belong to a group of artists who are always halfway out the door, <laughs> always ready to leave. So these plateaus are also enervating times because you think I developed something and then it falls away. So um, there's a rhythm to discovering that stuff, which is kind of long you know, um, takes time to, to really embody. Yeah, it's an open question. It's a really good question. It's an open one. I, I, I think it's possible to lay down those foundations earlier. Um, I think that's what good education does, no matter what. Mm. It, it provides the kind of um, well or possibility in the person to then return to or fill later in their life or whenever they need to, if they need to. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And we have touched on discipline a couple of times. Oh, I was afraid you were going to bring this up. Yeah, let's <laughs> go in there. <laughs> because I've recently had uh, the feeling in myself and also dancers around me that we are very well behaved. Mm -hmm. You used the word noble in the class, mm -hmm. I think. That yeah. You said, yeah, many dancers are so noble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this uh, sense of wanting to be right yeah. and uh, correct. And I wonder if that comes with all the discipline that comes within dance training. And I just, uh, yeah, I want to hear how you relate to yeah. discipline and also maybe how you think it is affecting the our field. Mm -hmm. That we are disciplined into being good and well-behaved. Yeah, maybe we need to separate the notion of discipline from conformity. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they, they slip in together on the same banana peel and, and sort of get, get fused early on. Um, a friend of mine who's a filmmaker and a, and a novelist, he was wor we were working on a project together, and he, he I, I think I've told this story before, but he, he we were living um, together, and he was filming a project that I was doing with, I think there were about 40 dancers in the project, and he was filming it, and we were living together at the time, and he I'd come home from rehearsal, and he'd be home editing some of the footage, and then he turned to me one evening, and he's like, you know, uh, and he knows the dance profession very well. He said, like, you know, I've realized today that you, what you guys do, first of all, is a social ritual. And then sometimes you get around to making art. Mm -hmm. But the very first thing you do is you get together and you develop rules of conduct, you develop uh, social attitudes. You even, in this you notice if you start to travel around to different dance companies, there's actually like clothing styles in different places. You know, And you can kind of recognize which uh, sort of 
aesthetic line people are adhered to depending on what they wear. Um, and that's unspoken often. It's not, uh, I mean, here I think it's very interesting that you guys do an actual code of conduct before you start a project. I think that's a very, um, actually that's quite a nice thing to do because it forces you to actually to articulate some of the yeah. intrinsic rules and then yeah. maybe understand that um, a consensus is built project to project depending mm. on what's needed. So conformity and discipline are two different things and maybe since we're so concerned very often with working in in a kind of social contract or social relation we we conflate the two. Um, and what my friend was saying was he, he, the next day he woke up and he was like I had a nightmare that I was working on Final Cut editing the film and I did like Apple V instead of Apple T so I didn't make the cut I actually like whatever Apple V would be, I don't know what the shortcut is. And I had the 40 dancers that you're working with, they were all standing behind me. And when I did Apple V, they went, ooh. <laughs> and he was like, he woke up with a cold sweat. And it was like, ah. Oh, and he's like, what I do is if he's a documentary filmmaker, he shoots and edits his own films and he's a novelist. So what I do is I go, I make all of my mistakes. I, I, I'm undisciplined and disciplined by myself. I make bad material by myself. Maybe I begin to share it with my editor at some point quite far down the process. And if I publish a novel, it comes out at least in the 98% in the form that I wanted it. Um, unless you're a avid solo artist that works in, in monasteries only, uh, tucked away and then presents things to the world, um, that's, that's not the case. You're, you're working with other people. So you're adhering to rules time schedules, scales and stuff. And so I think the, the difference is to, is to be able to adhere to that discipline of, of being with other people, hmm. um, but not have it be about conformity. So knowing to what extent can I actually, especially in the contemporary context, can I stretch and bend this material and pull it in one direction or another or be irreverent while still having discipline? This is hmm. where I think we get in. Because discipline and conformity are so conflated together what you often get and this happens in schools quite a bit and in companies too but is you get revolt against all uh, time agreements against mm. all etiquette agreements and people really feel that they're being they're doing a contemporary gesture by revolting against everything yeah which is a, just a dialectic opposition yeah. to conformity you know and as we know it usually leads back to the same place or it sort of halts everything so maybe it's a question of, of looking at how to take those two things apart. Just because you show up on time and you have a certain a general respect for the other people doesn't mean you're, you're uh, monitoring the room to see whether you do something right or wrong and uh, trying to like, oh, so-and-so is interpreting the thing this way, so I ought to do that too. Um, and I think that requires a group that has trust and continuity, in my experience. Um, so the continuity so that the regularity and the discipline is laid down in the group and then the ability to not conform to a task, a particular aesthetic idea or whatever. In my experience, it's those willful misinterpretations or kind of skewing of things that actually leads the material out onto a tangent. That would be the best response I have to that question. But I don't either think we should throw discipline away. I think, you know, there's a, there's sometimes a notion that without any form or without any repetition or discipline, freedom is around the corner. 
And most of us who've gone in a studio and said to ourselves, like, I'm just going to be dance-free. I'm just going to dance around. I just really hate all the conventions. And then, and then you're, like, right back in trope land, you know, mm. just dancing all the repetitions. And So I think the clearer the, 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 the form of discipline, be that a score or a, a class structure or, you know, maybe just a basic way of, of socializing or being with one another, the more fertile the ground is to not conform or maybe we can use say not not conform but like expand or skew or mm. bend or twist or or dare to just be stupid and mm. and try something that's something. and i mean norms will of course always be there but if we would like to train the expanding part yeah again back to uh, sensing your way through. I think there are ways where we could install preparation for expansion yeah. through the tr- training. Yeah. And there is something not in form, but in the way we relate to form yeah. that is maybe not encouraging later expansion. Yeah, definitely. Maybe the, maybe I could distinguish between discipline, the kind of hard discipline you're referring to of, you know, almost uh, punishment or the threat of punishment with uh, when I feel discipline is really buoyant and working well in my own work, it feels clear. Mm. It feels generative and clear. It feels like I have enough of an understanding uh, of where I am located in relationship to what that I from there I can step out into that liminal that unknown shore yeah you know to the extent possible whatever my inner blocks might be but so that feels like clarity the other thing feels like like regulation like like authority and policing mm. which is so prevalent anyway in, yeah. in in our in our algorithms in our cities in our um in our sensibilities so it's a, it's a tricky one. Discipline mm. is a word that triggers a lot of people too mm. because they associate it with that kind of authoritarian, um, bad environments, bad training. Um, whoever's training them has a lot of also unresolved stuff vis-a-vis their own, yeah. you know, and it gets passed on. Um, yeah, because of course, just staying engaged with something, just doing something, just doing something mm. takes discipline. Yeah. 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 Um, discipline also has a relationship to craft, which is a word that I don't use all that much in certain circles because it also triggers people in a kind of post-skill um, environment, uh, which also has a lot of interesting expressions. I don't want to say that that's de facto not interesting, but to talk about craft, sometimes people say a little bit like, oh, it's just such a modernist concern and you go in and you work on stuff and material and what is this material thing anyway it's all artifice it's all surface it's about um bouncing off different you know representational norms and screwing them and twisting them yes it is i I also think that uh, being in the presence of somebody who has some real serious skill and craft and is able to marry that with um a question an existential node, uh, a theoretical idea um, is really, really exciting, I think. Uh, In fact, 
it's one of the few things that really excites me about seeing performance now because it feels like I know when the person is fast, quick, and picked up the choreography, and it's almost like I can, I, you know, without judgment, I just see it. It's um, something is not being addressed. Perhaps that's just my concern, but it feels like there's something on the level of the marriage between craft and idea, craft and question, craft and existence, that's being left unaddressed. And um, I think we have a really exciting possibility with dance to explore that in an embodied way and to not stay only in the theoretical realm. But we need the theoretical realm as well. We need ideas, we need deconstruction, we need language, we need the schism that language can do. We need the poetics of language. And we also need ulterior um, feeling states, sensibilities, beings, relationships. And we have, the, we have such a unique opportunity to marry those things and craft and form I think are are great. Um, how would you kosh kosh bag? What do you call that? Uh, can't speak English anymore. Uh, crossroads mm. for those things. They can pass through that and you know form and reform. It's exciting. Mm. Um, but if you're trained in conformity to 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 see and to recognize those codes passing back and forth, then you might miss it because it's subtle, often. I find but when you begin to see it it becomes so powerful and so clear and so wow extraordinarily uh, vibrant so but maybe different maybe for our the purposes of this conversation we can just differentiate the, between discipline and conformity mm. and that they're two separate things yet they're also related a certain degree of conformity is necessary to be part of a dance company <laughs> it's part of the contract yes, yeah. but maybe the two are not just collapsed into each other you know that, that different forms of of personal discipline can be exercised within the, the framework of a group for example depending on where people are at what they need so this is in some ways the impossible task of being a teacher in a professional environment because you're encountering like highly skilled people who all are at different stages and need different things that you can never possibly offer everybody. It's also what makes it exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's also our work to find the space for ourselves in yeah in what is getting offered. Yeah, because yeah, the most rigid forms often have a little crack where you you can be yes yeah. absolutely so maybe that circles back to ballet i mean funny like the more the more like really contemporary performance environments i get into um the more i encounter people who, who are really like obsessed with classicism <laughs> it's really interesting maybe it's because i'm there and i'm often maybe the only person who has that kind of background so they can't stop talking about like ballet and their and, they, and and what i encounter is like they have so many preconceived notions about like hardness and discipline they're almost caricatures that they have about that that world i mean i'm i'm brought i'm saying this kind of broadly but and uh there's a lot of space in classical dance it's not something i'm interested in doing so much myself or even training at this point but um, I, I discovered that over the years. There's a lot of space, like you called it, a crack to kind of snuggle into and 
and and shavung it out or you know make a syncopation or think of it much more like interspatial musicality and you know it's they're just forms you know they're they're and and, and they're complex and they have twists and bends and they have you know things pointing in different directions and it's it, there's a lot of space to do things it's it's the idea that it's rigid and old that i think stops you from or stops one from from finding those spaces mm. so. the experience i have not had a lot of uh, ballet training at yeah. all um, but my experience when i've had is that the form in itself has space but there's almost a culture yeah that stands in the way and as you said in ballet school it's not always from the teacher either no. it's very much within me that i feel that there is very there's a very long way for me to own this form. Right. Hmm. Yeah. But then again, that sense of a ballet being far away, it came from somewhere. Sure. Well, it's a difficult form. But yes, that idea comes from somewhere. I don't know if it's a cultural thing or if it's a, if it has to do with the, the difficulty of the form, that the form came from, from the court, that it has this kind of uh, long and far away, uh, mm. this kind of, in the contemporary world, what I what I encounter is a lot of like horror and fascination, like longing for it, but also total rejection of it, and using it a lot as like a springboard for everything that's wrong. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes, um, to the extent that they don't actually look at what's going on in their own techniques or social worlds as as actually very similar to what happens in the classical mm. dance environments. So. I sound like a cheerleader for classicism. I'm not. It's not actually something that I think very much about or really consider. But but it's a form that's there. It's still there. You know what I mean? It's it's a form that I inhabit and it's formed me. And I think maybe with respect to discipline, I've tried to learn over the past years to let some of the hardness of the discipline go, and and to really enjoy the stamina. Of discipline whether it's perceptual stamina whether it's physical stamina but just knowing that I can get through there's a kind of fortitude and a, and a strength that that um, that comes through discipline mm -hmm. like in athletics but to also detach my sense of self from that from the necessity I think that took that took some time maybe maybe it's still taking time but I remember if you're talking about was there a shift Maybe in my early 30s, I started to feel like, okay, I don't have to do certain types of repetition to be somebody. I mean, you have to understand, I, my sense of self was intimately interrelated with form from the age of 12, 10. You know? And that's the unique thing about dance training. Maybe gymnastics has that, or certain kinds of classical music. You start at an age where ego formation is happening. So repetition, discipline, self-judgment, group dynamic, all of that's baked into who you think you are. So, so the long project, I, I spoke to, a, there's a martial arts teacher that I've worked with, um, Akira Hino is his name, he's a Japanese uh, martial arts teacher. He used to come to Frankfurt a lot to, to work with the company. And he does a lot of work on uh, sensation and alignment and um, and he said, oh, it gets really good in your 70s and 80s. 
because you're just you're done with the building of form and then you're done with the draining of that form but keeping the strength and vitality of the kind of draining of the identification with it sort of and then in your 70s it's like just you're like you're just free you know through that discipline there's some freedom that opens up so maybe there, there has to be a moment in time where the form feels strong enough the identity that needs to be built through having certain jobs, doing certain shows, learning certain things, having certain degrees now, for example. Um, and then from there, the gentle and slow kind of draining of some of that gripped uh, identity content inside, the fluidity to move in and out of form. That feels what's really at stake for me now, vis-a-vis yeah. discipline and form and, and choreography and all that sort of stuff. And I'm, so I'm thankful. I mean, he asked me in the beginning, what am I thankful for? I'm thankful that I have some form of form and some experience of discipline. I would not want to do that kind of discipline in my life now, but I have an experience of it. Yeah, if I envy ballet yeah. in any way, it's this to have a form because I can go into the studio and feel like, where is the dance to dance? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. To... Yeah, to have that form to rely on. Yeah. Because sometimes you just want the form so you can get going. Right, sure. And making up the form often takes me way too long. Right, yeah, sure. Well, so then you get, so you have a particular conundrum that happens in dance companies where you work with authors, you work with choreographers or people who come who've developed a kind of their own form over a really long period of time. And then you're both charged with making a piece in six weeks, which is the allotted amount of time we now understand as production time in the European context. Plus, you have to learn their technique from the ground up. I mean, this is like, it's crazy work that you have to do simultaneously. Mm. So yeah, sometimes it's sometimes it's the relief of a, of a class with a form. So I don't have to invent the form, I can just step into it and investigate what it, what it is, you know. Um, there's something that's been circling in my head when you've been asking me these questions. It's something that Anna Grip says a lot, who's a teacher and a mentor and a just an all-around fabulous person. Um, I agree. She says, uh, so you don't you graduate despite your education, not because of it. So you you, you your education is there to, to kick off of and to bounce off of and to to de- depart from and then reevaluate and come back to and depart from and reevaluate and come back to. And that's how it becomes your education. So what's mm-hmm. happening while you're learning is that you're in a soup. You know, it's like I have this. I've said to first year BA students when they're all getting together and lying in a heap on the floor and like this is going to be forever. And, and and then like this is part of the curve. And then I meet them in year three and they're like all about independence and finding their own platform for such and such. And they're on their way out. And and you know you're just kind of gathering stuff. But you don't know what that education is until five or ten years out. You're, I think that's what she means. Is like, if the education is a good one, it's strong enough for you to repel off of it, to push off of it, and and for it to come back to you. And form is like that, and discipline is like that too. Mm. In the non-conformist definition of discipline. I don't know, though. You know, all told, like I have no idea what I'm talking about. It's like it's dance, and you know, you do it, and then you do it a different way, and then you have an idea, and then that works for a while, and then, I mean, I honestly, I've been talking to some people lately, and I feel like I, I have more and more experience and less and less um, 
assuredness about things. I mean, I could draw any one of these theories out and say, like, this is the way, but maybe what I've learned through marrying form, discipline, and sensation, and the interest in those kind of other sensory techniques is that you never really know, you know, fully. And it's getting comfortable with that. I know it sounds like a Brene Brown kind of cliche thing and vulnerability, but really, you know, all bets are off. You don't know. Um, okay, my last question. Okay. It's maybe a bit silly. Okay. And I think we could uh, question the question, mm -hmm. but I think it could be interesting to try to answer. <laughs> and the question is, what is a good dancer? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm sorry, but mm. that's the question. Yeah. I find myself really at odds sometimes in the context in which I'm working and, and teaching and, and things like that with the, the, the general notion of what constitutes a good dancer. And you know who I'm most at odds with most of the time is other dancers. Not so much uh, other artists that I work with or even people who are part of the what we call the lay public or you know the audience or whatever, but it's really like dancers affirming very particular things in other dancers. And I, um, I find myself less and less agree, aligning with that. Um, you know, moving really fast, doing very impressive coordination. I mean, that stuff is great. I, it's really, it's exciting. And I like to see it, particularly in the commercial dance context, I like to see it because it's, it's the, the expression and the context are aligned really well. But um, I think that there's a way to hide behind being a good dancer, you know, um, to not really have that much at stake because you can, you can bend and, and twist and, and writhe and open and, and elongate and, and sensualize on the border of sexualized things. You can, um, you can grab onto that stuff too. So. I'm not answering the question very well. I think a good dancer is really context. It depends on the context. Um, people that I really admire have a lot of craft, a lot of skill, and are are filtering that. Maybe it's just because of my interest. Are filtering that into, um, are using that to filter things that they're that they're really investigating in real time. So they're not concerned with reproducing form or coded information. That's the kind of art that interests me at the moment. Um, and yeah. you say craft and skill. Yeah. Is that any sort of craft and yeah. skill? Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. It's like I can, but, but used or, or worked with, um, given a, a, a kind of question or a, a I can give an example of somebody that I think is a really, uh, it's just off the top of my head, but um, I've seen three of Dana Michelle's shows. Uh, she's the, she's a, a dance maker from Canada. And she does, her performances are, are a really interesting confluence of very thematic work. So she's working in, the, in one of her earlier pieces, Yellow Towel, she's working with like African-American tropes or um, Afro-diasporic tropes, you know, and moving through them, trumpets and cotton, cotton swabs and um, 
and she has like a, she maps her way through this universe of different cliches and tropes and at the same time she has this kind of she's not kind of she has a a body drive a logic that's that's so unpredictable like it's almost spasmodic like you don't know and yet it's extremely clear and has tons of form and moves in all different directions at the same time and she keeps that more or less through the entire most of the pieces I've seen but particularly that one won't tell so she's got this really abstracted uh, no I don't want to use that word she has this very kind of clear body techne that she's working with that's like underneath this very clear imagery and um uh, uh, like historical nodes and the two are like crashing against each other through the whole piece and it just means that you can't really like it takes so much skill to stick with that kind of erratic sensory it's, this is my interpretation I, I'm gonna ask her about it directly but to stick with that to keep that motor and drive going it's really a drive and it's a drive that comes from uh, it comes from somewhere inside outside elsewhere archetypal i'm not sure but it's not the one that you know walks up the stairs and goes ding dong hi it's it's a totally different drive and it takes tremendous skill and craft to work on both of those layers at the same time so there's an example of like i mean besides being a very interesting artist she's like a great performer i'd say dancer in that case because she can sustain that where I would get tired after 10 minutes and or like think people didn't like you know I would I, I don't maybe I don't have the stamina for it at this point or something but god that was impressive to see and I saw it on two different occasions in two different contexts and it, over the span of like three four years and it was equally like this is just virtuoso that's crazy that you can do this and and sustain it and stay with it and be so committed to it uh, I saw the Cunningham, the 100-year anniversary Cunningham performance, which happened all over the world. And there were some dancers, and I saw the LA version. There were some dancers in that, which were like, whoo, 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 what? And because it's so, the choreography is so awkward. <laughs> you know, they're like going from a, from a, like an attitude tip to like a jump forward onto a straight leg, and to watch some of them, like keep their concentration balanced so that their body could wobble and move and shift through those forms it was very impressive super impressive um and then the last example i'll give there was a guy who used to so when i was 16 i went on exchange to the hamburg ballet school john neumeyer's big dance ballet company and, and we got to watch rehearsals and there was this guy at the time you know it was a company full of very tall beautiful people just just row after row of like exquisite and then there was this guy in the corner who was like really short like unusually short even for just the performer in general uh and he had kind of like bow legs and his hair was sort of messy and he was wearing a torn t-shirt where a lot of them were like dressed in exquisite leotards he's just a whole fashion to make the and I remember we, we actually were watching class. So I would watch him and I could not, I would like try to look away and I couldn't look away. I had to look back again because I did not understand the mechanics of how he fit into classical forms. At the time I was 16, so I really had a very strong idea of like, in order to do this well, you have to have this kind of body and this sort of facility and you know, you're busy matching. And, and this guy defied every principle that I was busy setting up in my universe. 
and he was I just couldn't stop watch his name is Lloyd Riggins I couldn't stop watching him I was like this and then he we went to see a performance where he was like the star of the show and he's like it's a gorgeous dancer who just found I, what I remember about him because a lot of the vocabulary was very classical vocabulary so it wasn't like working like I'm talking about Dana on the perceptual level but like he found an economy a, like a brilliant ease and economy given a body that absolutely did not conform to the preconceived notion of what a classical body would be maybe because of that he had to learn how to figure out how to how to move in such a deft and clear way in and out of form so there's another example of a great dancer somebody who figured out how to be in space and time and produce <laughs> movement i don't know <laughs> that makes a good dancer Lately, I think it's people who have um, who can dare to just get just go into something else. You know, I just think that's so interesting to watch people to watch people work on something when they care about something. You know, and when they're not in reactivity or or negation of something. I, when they're when they're when they're working on affirming a particular experience that that they are working on, I just think that's fascinating. And I can see that in like a very tight form, but I can also see it in people, you know, reaching to the beyond of the universe of the great sensual understanding of the three levels of consciousness. You know, yes, <laughs> that, yes, that yes, kind of yes. thing. Yes. That, that thing. <laughs> so it's both, and and I just I, I can I can be with that kind of performer for a long time, and I can forgive a lot of things in their procedure because at the base of it they're risking something they dare and that gives me courage and and excites me a lot so oh it's possible so in the rare events that i see that i'm just like i really um i usually thank people profusely when i see that and make sure to reach out to them and write to them and say this was an example of something that was unbelievable Thank you. Um, very long. I talk so much. No, it was perfect. I think we close it there. Close it there. Yeah. Thank close you so much. Thank you so much. Great initiative.